Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Status Pending. This is the Case Overview Series. Scott Fuller and Heather Wright back with you for another Friday. Howdy, Heather. Howdy, Scott. How are you this fine July week? Tired. Exhausted. Do you um, have all your fingers and, and hands? Because some people I don't do anymore. Currently, yes. So I am good in that aspect. Uh, a few of my family members are completely without power. They got a tornado yesterday. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they it's been wild up here in Ohio. So was it on the 4th of July? Yeah, it was when I texted you about the police scanner. That yeah. I was, I was listening to your police scanner out there. Yeah, it's wild out here, I'm telling you. I was just trolling around the country looking for some action. When you did that, when you texted me, Jason goes, why is he listening to Cincinnati? <laughs> and I was like, because we have the most shit going on, that's why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was, there was quite a bit. It's so funny, though, because he's the type that loves that kind of stuff, but like he hasn't used it in... I can't even tell you how long, but as soon as I said that you were on it, he got on it and he was on it for hours. Yeah. I'm back on a kick now too. <laughs> I was listening to my local town for uh, an hour or two today. Packing for my trip. So uh, apologies in advance. I'm going on vacation for a week and so we will not have an episode next week, but we will have two episodes for you coming back the following week, I think is yes. our plan. Yes. Today, I have a hometown sort of case today for you, Heather. Actually, nice. it's for me. Um, this is one of those where, just because of our scheduling this week, Heather has not heard the case, so she's going to be experiencing with it. She is going to be experiencing it alongside you. I got it. There you go. <laughs> Words it. are hard. It's very difficult. Man, it's not Friday yet, almost. Yeah. As we record this, it's not quite Friday mm-hmm. yet, but I'll get there, I think. Uh, that is coming up next. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So my connection to this case was, and I've never heard of this before, our case today is Suzanne Sales. 
and she was born and raised where I now live in Austin, Minnesota. It's the town I've lived in for the last 12 or 13 years. So you said I hadn't heard of it. I think I have. I have. Like you didn't tell me about it, but I think I've heard of this. You've heard of this case. I think so. Didn't happen in Austin, but she was from Austin, graduated high school, went to college here. That you know by name because I hadn't heard of this. It's old too. I just remember her last name. It may have been a podcast I listened to a long time ago, but I remember her last name. So maybe maybe it is the same, maybe not. Okay. We'll see. So Austin is uh, the very southern part of the state where I live. It's right along the Iowa border. And this week, then looking into Suzanne Sales' case, I discovered that I live a mile from where she grew up and the home where oh. her parents lived for like decades after this. Wow. So I now feel kind of a connection to this one. Again, it's not talked about anymore here, just the passage of time, I guess. I hadn't heard of this before this week. So Suzanne, again, born and raised in Austin, Minnesota. She graduated Austin High School in 1974. She attended junior college here and then moved up to Minneapolis. She was described as being a very sweet, very kind person, didn't have anything negative to say about anybody. Seems like she made friends very easily wherever she went. Kind of kept to herself, but definitely had some friends. Everybody at work liked her. Just a very nice person to be around. By 1979, Suzanne is 24 years old, and she's working in the Twin Cities as a secretary for the Minnesota Dental School, which was and might still be, I'm not sure, but at the time it was a pretty prominent national dentistry school, I guess, at the University of Minnesota. So at that point, she had lived in Minneapolis for five years, and again, well-liked by her coworkers. She had found a pretty good niche. She was away from home. She definitely missed her family, talked to them quite frequently on the phone, probably missed some friends from back home. She, she was starting a new life, you know, as one does in their early 20s. And she had also met a man. She was engaged. She had met her fiancé while he was a student at the dental school that she was a secretary at. He graduated. He opened his own practice, dental practice in Fargo, which is about three hours from Minneapolis. So at this time in 79, it's a long distance relationship at the moment, but the plan is she's going to move from there up to Fargo to live with him. And that's presumably where they're going to spend the rest of their life. So we're going to May of 79 and Suzanne was found apparently strangled inside her apartment where she lived by herself. Apartment 305 at 333 Southeast 8th Street in Southeast Minneapolis. Her body was found by a female best friend of hers and one of her co-workers at about 4.30 p.m. on May 23, 1979. When they got there, they found the door was unlocked. They discovered her body, and they called the police, obviously, right away. The killer had used one of Suzanne's own bras as a ligature in the strangulation. And side note, that is a surprisingly common ligature in such cases. I'm not going to say it's super common, but this is definitely not the first time a case like that with that kind of ligature has been used. And I think there was even in the early 70s, there was a string of these in Boston. I think it was like five or six women who were strangled, I guess, by their own bras, which I'd never thought of as a good ligature, but I guess they don't break. I feel like I heard that somewhere, but I don't remember where or why it came up. But yeah, that was one of the reasons behind it, because it was opportunistic type of weapon for them. Um, and then it was th what I read was that it had some sexual motivation behind it. Mm. I hadn't thought that. I, I just thought weapon of opportunity and lack of planning in terms of bringing any weapon that right. we know of. But yeah, that's interesting. Sexual mm -hmm. connotation. 
So her best friend who saw Suzanne's body, very traumatic experience, obviously for her, uh, is the only person who's described the body and the position in the apartment and where it was publicly. Her friend said the body was on the floor of the apartment and seemed to have been propped up into a sitting position against the couch, presumably by whoever killed Suzanne. Suzanne was a very modest person, very attractive girl, good looking, but she's very modest. She was not only wearing like full length pajamas when they found her, but she typically, and I think on that night too, had been wearing like some kind of overcoat over her pajamas, even when she was home alone. So maybe part modesty, but also just a comfort thing, you know, like a extra, almost like a blanket over your pajamas. Right, right away, police did not release a motive. Um, but it was eventually made public that Suzanne had been sexually assaulted. That wasn't necessarily readily apparent, like she was fully clothed, but they, as we'll discuss, did find that her underwear had been pulled down. Police determined that she had been dead for about 20 hours at the time the body was found, which would put her time of death at about 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. the night before, Tuesday, May 22nd. And she lived alone, right? Yes. Yes. I'm thinking that time seems to be closer to 9 p.m. because eventually we find out that Suzanne had spoken with her mom by phone, and I guess that call happened at about 8 p.m. Okay. So after the call to her mom, and there's nothing that we know of unusual or amiss with a phone call. It was a normal thing for her to do. She'd call home several times a week to talk to her parents. That day, Tuesday then, had been a very normal day, very routine day at the office for Suzanne. Apparently nothing out of the ordinary that anybody knew about or could remember. A homicide investigator told the media that her alarm clock had been set to go off on Wednesday morning. Um, They noted that, I guess, I guess they note that because Suzanne's supposed to get up for work on Wednesday as usual, and maybe they're thinking that she was already kind of in bedtime mode Mm. in setting her alarm clock. That's the only reason I could think that that's a noteworthy thing to mention. It's also a little bit noteworthy that the alarm then would be going off for hours throughout the day and nobody none of the neighbors heard anything Mm, yeah i guess depending on the alarm depending on the apartment the the volume of it too yeah because now like my phone alarm you can barely hear but back Mm -hmm. then those blaring you know alarm clocks true yeah so she's not at work obviously on wednesday and at first her co-workers thought this was unusual right away but her grandfather had been in poor health and all of her co-workers knew that so everybody kind of assumed that that's why she wasn't at work maybe something had happened she didn't have time to call in yet on wednesday so they mm-hmm. tried calling her throughout the day got no answer and then as we get into the afternoon still nobody has heard from suzanne so her co-workers become increasingly concerned she, this was unlike her. She wouldn't miss a whole day of work without planning it in advance or at least calling in. So by 4, you know, 3.34, um, they get a hold of Suzanne's best friend. She didn't know where she was or hadn't heard from her. So she, the best friend, and one of the female coworkers went to her apartment to check on her, and that's where they found her. Quick question, though. So they went there to check on her. So did they have, like, keys to her apartment because they were her friends? Was her door unlocked? Do we know anything? It was unlocked. I don't know if they had plans. I don't think they had keys. The best friend might have because how are they going to get in if it's presumably locked, but that the door was left unlocked. Mm. The theory that police eventually come up with is that Suzanne had been watching specifically a special feature on a singer, Helen Reddy, that had been on that night before. And the theory was there was a knock on the door. 
and Suzanne answered the door. Police believe she had to have known who he was or at least had a good reason to let him in. And um, then he raped her and strangled her. This raised a bunch of red flags for Suzanne's friends and family, though, because Suzanne was apparently ultra security conscious. There were times when, in the past, Suzanne wouldn't open the door at night for people that she knew. Um, If she heard a noise at night or somebody who she didn't know was knocking on the door, she would actually call somebody. She would call friends. That had happened in the past. So Suzanne's door was locked, I think it's safe to say. And not only that, but there's on the front entrance to the building, there's a lock and a buzzer system that this person would have had to have gotten access to coming from the outside as well which I think is pretty indicative of who this person was, or at least who Suzanne might have thought this person was. Right. There were a couple of fingerprints lifted from the scene, a possible smudged palm print lifted from the scene. From what I can gather, these fingerprints are pretty useless. They were too smudged or degraded or whatever to use. It's been noted that like 110 pieces of evidence were collected from the scene. Over 100 pieces of evidence were collected from the scene. Not sure what those are. Those could just be belongings that they want to test later that might have something to do with something. But they are, you know, they're, they're looking at this case pretty deep for what forensic capabilities there are in 79 from the beginning. It's noted that some of Suzanne's jewelry, a watch, three rings, and earrings were found at the scene, and it kind of seems like they were scattered on the floor. So that limits robbery as maybe a motive or a secondary motive, but police also theorized that these were items that were probably either in Suzanne's purse or in a dresser that was open, and their thinking is that her killer after this is going through her purse or her dresser looking for a picture of Suzanne or an ID of hers to keep. Like as a trophy? Yeah, basically. Mm. Nothing else in the apartment is out of place except for obviously Suzanne being there, some things sprawled out on the floor like her jewelry, and that dresser drawer being opened and kind of rummaged through. Everything else is where it should be. They did eventually find blood on Suzanne's underwear, Mm. and it was determined to not be hers. Oh. Yeah. So they think... What happened is when she opens the door, he puts her hand pretty quickly over her mouth. And then Suzanne bit the hand of her attacker Mm, to keep her from screaming. Nobody heard any screams. So I think he he kept his hand over her mouth even while she was biting him. But then when he went to pull Suzanne's underwear down, his blood was transferred from his hand there. And probably not a significant wound because there's no blood on the floor. There's no blood on a counter or a doorknob or anything like that. It's just on her underwear. So I think it's almost more like a scratch, just breaking the skin. Because at first they weren't sure of a a motive. They saw her underwear having been pulled down, but she was fully clothed and they didn't see the blood, it sounds like, right away. So probably a pretty small amount of blood. This is obviously 79. DNA is not a thing, not thought of yet. But they keep the underwear. And then as early as 1989, police in this case are talking about DNA in hoping to identify the killer. 89 being very early in the scheme of things when it comes to DNA. So I was pretty concerned and kind of still am about the condition of the DNA at this point. The very early, you know, storage and science of DNA in 89 in this case specifically, and I guess the DNA is in good enough shape in in 2008, where they actually compared five or six people that Suzanne knew when it came to the DNA. So somehow, some way, even though this was collected way before DNA, this evidence, and it was stored, you know, in probably a very rudimentary way in 89 when the DNA is just now coming about, 
they wouldn't be taking DNA, I, I would think, unless they had something to compare it to. So somehow, the DNA evidence seems to have survived all the way, at least 2008. This was also one of the first cases in the country to be profiled by the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. So after about six months, they got stuck, the local police, and they asked the FBI for what's now called a profile um, of Suzanne's killer. So if anybody's seen the fictionalized uh, Netflix series Mindhunter, this is the period of time that we're talking about, the very, very beginning of the BAU yes. for the FBI. Such a good show. So this was one of those first cases in real life that they looked at. That's pretty cool. The FBI profile. Now, we have to remember, they're just kind of inventing this at this time. So some of this we look at now and say, well, duh, yeah. And some they might not even be right about. But actually, it's pretty cutting edge for, you know, 1979, 1980. They think he's most likely male, under 35, kept a diary or log of the crime, maybe newspaper clippings. He may have taken a souvenir from the apartment to feel some attachment to the victim. He may also take out a newspaper ad or visit Suzanne's grave around the anniversary of the murder. They also said if you catch him, there's a pretty good chance he would confess. The local police have said, sort of secondarily said, they think this is probably this guy's first murder and there's a chance he hasn't done it since then. And if that's the case, they were thinking that he would memorialize this event in some way every year around May 23rd or May 22nd, around that time. There might have been some evidence of stalking in Suzanne's case. Friends say she was concerned about a series of, quote, disturbing phone calls she'd been receiving. They don't say how many or for how long, but it seems like this is going on for at least a while because um, she actually changed her public phone book listing from Suzanne Sales to SL Sales. It was bothering her at least for long enough for her to think about changing her phone number in the phone book and then actually change it. Probably at least a couple of months, if not longer. It doesn't say how frequent the calls were or what disturbing means in this context. I was just about to ask. <laughs> no, they didn't. When you said that they thought at that point that the person hadn't committed any other crimes since her, at what stage was that? Like, what year was that? I think that was 98. 98 or, I'm okay. sorry, 89. So oh, 10 okay. years after. Because there were basically three, three public benchmarks in the case was 79 when it happened, 89, kind of around 10 years, and they're talking about DNA for the first time. And then about 2008, um, it's reopened by somebody to take a new look and they interviewed as many surviving friends and families as they could. They talked to the now retired original investigators on the case. They interviewed them. So they gave it a good faith try again in 2008. And that's also when they collected some of those samples from the five or six people that Suzanne knew. At the time back in 79, they took a look at every sex crime in the surrounding area, trying to find some links to Suzanne's case. This is much more difficult back then. Pre-computers, this is all um, this is all by hand and all on paper, and it's all within your jurisdiction even at that, because uh, you could call around and ask, describe your crime and ask if there's been something similar, but it's just a lot harder to do with no centralized database of any kind for anybody, even inside your own agency. So there might be some other series or some other crime that could have slipped off the radar just because this case was so long ago. There was, this was interesting, an unnamed man who was questioned. I think this is during kind of the sex crime roundup. And police discovered that he had saved newspaper clippings from the case, which was one of the items in the FBI profile of the case. And the man's explanation for this is he was simply fascinated with the street address 333, 
where she lived. Mm. So on the one hand, that sounds pretty suspicious. On the other hand, there are these kind of people out there, too. Yeah, I was thinking he was going to say something like, oh, I just felt a connection because of X, Y, Z. Because it's so sad. Whatever. You know, she reminds me of my sister or whatever. Right. No, he says the street address fascinated me. Yeah, I feel like then he should have clippings of other. (laughs) Maybe he did. Three. Now, it was true that the, the full street address was printed in the newspaper. So there was that. Um, if that if he's guilty and he's making that up, that's a that's a new one to me. That's a real weird, um, you know, explanation to give for why he's got those. But yeah, uh, cops will tell you these kind of people are out there, especially in a big city like Minneapolis. There's all kinds of crazy people. So they gave polygraphs in this case. Don't say how many or to who, but it's reported that nobody failed any of the polygraphs in connection to this case. Suzanne's parents, who lived again back down here in Austin. And they had the same house that Suzanne had grown up in, and they kept it for years and years. I'm not sure of this, but they may still be alive, and they'd be in their early 90s. Um, They kept Suzanne's childhood bedroom colored in pink and exactly the way it was for 30, 40 years after this happened. I I noticed that a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's like a thing where you can't let go or, you know, it's just that reminder of that person. And if you get rid of it or change it into something else, it feels like you gave up on them or something. I think there's that. And then it's another, I guess it's the one thing that you can control and kind of keep. And once you turn that room into something else, it really is done, you know? Yeah, it's sad. They kept her car parked in the garage for that time, too. She had a gold car that was parked in the garage. Anybody with information about this case, call the Minneapolis Police Department, 612-673-2941. Sources for this episode, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, reporting by Caroline Lowe for WCCO, my Find Jody team member. You can find plenty more Caroline with our Finds Jody podcast. And a 2021 Medium article written by Jen Baxter. So, question. I don't know if you know the answer or not, but... The way the apartment building is set up, I have a couple questions about it. How many other tenants were there? And you mentioned that there was like a buzzer locked door system. So what if it was one of the neighbors who actually entered her apartment that night? So nobody actually had to be buzzed in or anything. And if it was a neighbor, maybe she was one, familiar with them, two, perhaps thought something was wrong because why would they be coming to her that late at night? So I think that's pretty likely. Because it seems like the the list of people who she would buzz in and let in at that hour is pretty low, just by based on what her friends say. Because um, she wouldn't answer the door sometimes for people she knew. In this case, I think that's a definite possibility. And so that would be anybody who lives there, anybody who is dating somebody or married to somebody who lives there, anybody who is friends with either of the above. And it's a, this is still a relatively, you're going to end up with 80 120 names to check out probably Um, because the apartment complex itself it seems to me I have a picture in front of me but it's three floors and two sides and it seems to me there are about four units per floor per side so that would be 24 let's say maybe that's about right because there are studios there are one bedrooms and there are two bedrooms she Suzanne lived on the third floor I don't know the size of her apartment though I think it was a one bedroom I know it was at least a one-bedroom. I don't think it would have been a two. Wouldn't make sense. She doesn't need it. And it wasn't a studio. Um, yeah, you probably have 20, 30 units. 80 mm-hmm. to 120 people that you probably want to check out. Uh, Can I but just yeah. say, I looked up her photo, too. She is beautiful. Yeah, she's a good-looking 
good looking girl. So back to your theory, though, I think that's pretty likely. And then ask myself, she's not letting her friends in. She's probably not letting many of the neighbors in because she's not going to be right. friendly with most of the people in the building. She might Unless be kind of friendly. Wrong. Right. So it would be a knock on the door. There's a fire. Knock on the door. Mm. Um, some reason where she needs to open the door under any awareness level, under any circumstances. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think about the fire thing. Like whoever is knocking has credibility for at least what they're presenting so hey it's joe from you know 301 you know whatever it is um somebody claiming to be a police officer somebody claiming to be fire department something like that i mean i think inside the building is i I usually wouldn't but i think inside the building is maybe more likely than not yeah and my my question going off of that theory too would be and i don't even know if police would have thought of this or even had the resources to look into it like if anybody moved right after that which i guess could go could be like twofold like people are moving because they're worried that something might happen to them too or they're moving because they're guilty right i researched quite a bit inside the building because i liked that research aspect that there's good probability i think that we're looking mm-hmm. for somebody inside the apartment i didn't find a whole lot i found a few names nothing that jumped out i found one thing this is a bit of a stretch but five years before 79 so in 74 a then 26 year old man alfonso nephew was one of five men arrested by the fbi charged basically with sex trafficking he was alleged to have transported women from kansas city to baltimore for the purposes of prostitution he lived in that building in 1974 or about the time that suzanne moved to minneapolis i don't know that she was living in that building then and obviously he's gone by 79 when Suzanne is killed but I guess it does introduce a possible angle of his associates who might later have reason to later encounter Suzanne I don't know but it does tell you at least I'm not gonna say it's a bad part of town but you have a human trafficker who's living there you know in the last couple of years too so with the phone calls too I wondered about phone records 1979 is kind of the wild west when it comes to that but I would hope that after friends and family um mention that these are all landlines so you can get them at that time from the phone company if you're the cops so i hope they would have looked into that that would have been a pretty strong lead don't know for sure the phone calls are related to what happens to her but there's at least that's a pretty strong link to look into anyway don't know that they did any of that or could do any of that i guess the best hope in this case is that dna is still somehow in good enough shape and science has evolved obviously a lot so they don't need a whole lot hopefully two things it's evolved enough to test whatever they still have and also because it's collected in 79 when nobody's thinking about dna i hope it's not overly contaminated where it's still you know a useful piece of conclusive evidence for them and there's a very good chance it might not be because it's been handled so many times in a pre-dna age over the years but now familial dna would get you close enough to probably close it if the guy were dead yeah. And if he were alive, you could find him. But even if this is one of those, because it's so long ago, that if they had reasonable suspicion, they might name him, they might not, but they could at least give that to her remaining family and friends and close the case. Best case, it's getting tough because it's been so long. Best case, how old would this guy be? He would be uh, 60s, 70s, probably, if he was in his 20s back then. 
familial DNA, this is one of those classic cases. This is the kind of case that we're seeing solved in the headlines now that's from 75, 85, you know. Unless you have witnesses or DNA, nowadays it's hard to uh, close these. There was one, there were no witnesses. There was a woman who heard a door slam at 9 or 10 o'clock that night, which doesn't help out a whole lot. Yeah, because, well, I mean, if that's when it happened, that... We at least know that, but if it it's even her door, and exactly because it um, could be one of the other 30 apartments' right. doors, it does right. help, I guess, kind of the timeline. But they pretty much knew that with the medical evidence and the phone call. I mean, their theory includes what TV show she was watching because that was still on, that channel was still on the next day. Mm. So they had it pretty down for a timeline compared to most of our cases. And I think their theory is just about dead on, too. That's how he got the bite, that's how it went down. The big question mark, aside from who is it, is how he got her to answer the door. I guess also what he took. Because they speculate in the early articles that they were looking for maybe a photo or a driver's license, which kind of implies that it was missing. But I'm also not sure if she drove, because her car is back in Austin. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that, too, when you said that it was in her parents' garage. So she lived close enough, I guess, to the school to be able to walk? or Okay. It's really close to the campus, pretty close to the dental school. Okay. There is now and was back then a large manufacturing plant, which normally w- would be more of a possibility for me to look to, for connections to. But anywhere outside the apartment doesn't look great just because of how cautious she was. The thing about the phone calls being maybe related to, and they might not be, she's not a high-profile, high-risk kind of victim, so you kind of lean toward them being the same person making the calls and eventually killing her. You know, she didn't recognize the voice at the door, not that you necessarily would, and there was nothing alarming or suspicious in whatever this guy is presenting when he's standing in her door to her. Because from the sounds of it, she would doubt this guy is a cop, you know, if he's saying he's a cop, unless there were some credibility he could give for whatever ruse he's using at the door. And whatever it was was enough to get her to open it. Because there's no forced entry. The door's open when the friends get there. So she opened the door. And that makes sense for the rest of the evidence, too. Yeah, that's the most frustrating part for me, too. Because, you know, uh, Jason's been traveling a lot for work this year. Now that, you know, COVID's kind of gone down a little bit. Traveling's back open. So I'm already a paranoid person. But it sounds like she's, she was similar to me in, in the sense that she wouldn't even open the door for people she knew. I'm the same way. So for her to open it that late at night, I feel like it would have to be something in her eyes as an emergency. Like this is a life and death situation. I have to get out of here. I have to open the door for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Because I wouldn't, I mean, I live here and I'm the same way. I would not open the door unless I truly thought it was an emergency. Yeah. And my best person. Yeah. I'm thinking fire, you know? Yeah. There's a fire. Yeah. Because it's going to engulf the entire freaking apartment building. You have to open the door. Yeah. Right. You can't be wrong about that. Oh, um, it just makes it so much more twisted, whoever did this, mm-hmm. because they preyed on the fear even more. Right. <sighs> it's very sophisticated, too, if it is the same stalker, if he's making the phone yeah. calls. He knows she's not going to answer the door for anybody. So he already knows he has to do this. He can't mm-hmm. He can't pretend to have flowers. He can't pretend to be somebody else. She's right. not going to open the door out of curiosity at all. He already knows that about her. He knows the only way that she's going to open the door is if it's a really bad situation that's all our conjecture that that was the ruse but she opened it for somebody for some very important reason i'm pretty convinced of that women in general in 79 were not as aware of their personal safety i'd say as now 
But this is Ted Bundy time. There's your mm-hmm. Ted Bundy reference. This Hi, is uh, Hillside Strangler, I think, is right about then. So there's stuff happening in the national news. I think this is when they caught Bundy about, basically, in Florida. If any of the details about Bundy, Bundy was the same way in terms of his predation with the crutches and getting mm-hmm. the victim in a vulnerable situation. So if yeah. any of that was out there in the news. But Suzanne's even way over the top hyper aware of her personal security from what everybody has said. Did she have a boyfriend? Did she... Well, she had the fiance who was oh, in Fargo. That's right. For And you want to look at his friends too. Not because yeah. they were involved through him, but who has access to her. Right. Who has the who chance to meet has her. gained her trust. Yeah. Yeah. And not that from the sounds of it, I don't think she's opening the door for her fiance's best man to be, to be honest. Yeah, I wouldn't. But it's not impossible at all that they become friendly with somebody else in the apartment too. And does that girl have a boyfriend or does that guy have a friend who's in the building already that night? Or that's what you would typically do inside an apartment building is talk to them and then who up who's come over to your apartment in the last three months and why make a list of all those people and that's going to be 100 and plus names i don't know that they realized how important inside the apartment as a theory was until later on so when they were doing the initial canvassing it's probably that floor maybe the rest of the building did you hear anything did you see anything it's probably not as thorough as they later assumed it would have to be because of the probability that the attacker's probably inside the building and I'm probably going to sound ignorant here, but I am younger. I don't know when, but didn't food delivery start happening around the 1970s? Or am I thinking way too early here? Because what if it was well, a delivery first it was, person? First, it was the pizza companies. And I don't know when that started. And I just read a book about that. Not just about that. But I don't. It, it's close. Okay, because I remember reading something not too long ago about like uh, Chinese restaurants who delivered food, and I feel like they were like some of the first, but there were only a couple, and that was like, oh, I want to say like the 1930s or 40s, I don't remember, 1940s maybe? By the 1970s, late 1970s, that some places would be delivering food, so what if she ordered food? Could be. She would open for them. That's possible. Um, I know by the late 80s for sure, like when the the pizza delivery companies, because we don't know who was buzzed in, if any was anybody was buzzed in. She would really have to be expecting somebody like that, you know, and no one's come yeah. forward to say she ordered food from the restaurant. The case wasn't huge in the media, but it definitely got some coverage in 79. They would be able to tell that by her phone records, too, though, right? Like, if they have the phone records, yeah, they could tell okay. that she called. Because, I mean, there's no cell records, obviously, so it's right. the one phone number. Landline. Yeah, so I'm hoping they did that, especially since she's getting the harassing phone calls. Yeah, so hopefully with the DNA, science has evolved so much that they don't need much. But it also sounds like there wasn't much to begin with. And um, it's probably contaminated. It's probably degraded. But... I think it's worth a shot if it's still testable. You might It might not get anywhere. You might get one of the first officers on the scene, you know, his DNA or whatever, but you want to check it out. It's crazy, though. Yes. Very sad case. It's interesting to look back at cases that old, too. Mm-hmm. We do our fair share of 80s, quite a few 90s, early 2000s, but 79 is one of the older cases that we've 
covered. And you almost have to transport yourself back into a place that we haven't been before. You know, society was totally yeah. different back then. I mean, it was before both of us were born. Yeah. I can finally say that about you. <laughs> Thanks for that. On that happy You're welcome. note. <laughs> uh, thoughts, theories, we love uh, your interactions, status spending podcast at gmail.com, patreon.com slash status spending for early access to regular episodes and then exclusive episodes. We still have to do that uh, Atlanta Child Murders doc review at some yes. point. And uh, stuff like that is what you get on the Patreon, and it's a dollar a month or more if you want the goodies from Heather. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening anyway. Thanks for your support. We appreciate you being here every Friday and raising awareness for these cases with us. And we'll be back next We'll actually be back a week from Friday with two cases for you. And we'll talk to you then. Bye. Bye.